So if you take a camera and you set it up on a tripod and then you press the shutter button, what do you get? You get a photograph, right? A single still shot. It's, it, it, the, the beauty of a photograph is that it captures a singular moment of time and space in one single frame. Now if you go back to that same tripod and you press the shutter again and again and again and again, over time you can take all of these still images and you can create a time-lapse video. There's a whole industry of time-lapse videography and kind of the purists, instead of taking video and speeding it up, they will take thousands upon thousands of singular images and string them together to create time-lapse videography. And what's beautiful about it is that you can see the process of change in a really dynamic way that's kind of hard to see in real time. So if you were to, to watch something for an entire day, there'd be all these distractions, things that happen slowly over time. It could be very difficult to see change. But if you take that same 24-hour period and you speed it up, you're able to see the process of change in a different way. Even though it's the same thing, the time lapse uh, kind of uh, uh, gives us a different view of time. And so you see change in a different way. So for example, you could go to YouTube today and you could search these different time lapse videos. I did that this week and I was really uh, captivated by a time lapse video of a sunflower. And in two minutes, I was able to watch 83 days of the life cycle of a sunflower. I, I imagine you probably wouldn't give 83 days of your life to just sit there and watch a sunflower. But you might give two minutes to it. And it's amazing to see the seeds start to, uh, to sprout and you watch the root system start to take place. And then this, the, 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 there's a, uh, the seed sprouts and this root becomes a shoot, becomes a flower. And you can see the whole process of change in a really short amount of time. Unlike a photograph that captures a singular moment, Time-lapse allows you to see the incremental process of change sped up so that you actually see what's happening. Well, this morning in Genesis 31, we're going to see a time-lapse video of Jacob. Not actually, I don't have a video of his life or photographs, but the text gives us 20 years of his life in 55 verses. And the time-lapse helps us see this process of change as he learns some hard-fought lessons of faith. You see, most of us, we don't recognize the change happening in our lives day to day because it's happening slowly, incrementally. Uh, but that's how process, that, that's how change happens. It's incrementally slow. But when we take a step back and we look back on larger swaths of our lives, we can actually see the process of change. And what's important for us not to miss in Jacob's life this morning is we see him start to interpret his circumstances in light of God's character. And that'll be really clear in this passage. So instead of looking at his circumstances and making an assessment or an interpretation of God's character, he interprets his circumstances in light of God's character. In other words, he starts to look at his life with the eyes of faith. In this chapter, we're going to see that Jacob has learned two important hard-fought lessons in the life of faith. 
First, in verses 1 to 16, we'll see that Jacob learns to obey God's word no matter the difficulty. No matter the difficult circumstances happening in his life, Jacob is learning that regardless of the difficulty, it's always best to obey God's word. And in verses 17 to 55, really the end of the chapter, we're going to see that Jacob learns to trust God's promises despite the circumstances. See, if you remember, Jacob's not a perfect man. He's, he's like all of us. He stumbles and fumbles along the way. He's a really self-reliant person who wants to uh, uh, take matters into his own hands. He wants to control the trajectory of his life. But as these chapters start to unfold in Jacob's life, we start to see him and trust himself to the Lord. And I think that's really good news for you and me because we're just like Jacob. As we stumble and fumble along the road of faith, God is patient with us. He's like a loving father who takes the long road of change. He doesn't expect his children to change overnight. And he's with us and he's for us um, like a loving parent with a long view of change. So let's look together in verse 1 to learn this first lesson of faith. To obey God's word no matter the difficulty. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Jacob had heard that the sons of Laban were saying... Jacob has taken all that, I was, that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. So at this point in the story, it's been 20 years since Jacob first showed up in uh, Padan Haram empty-handed. You remember he had uh, shown up with nothing. Remember he didn't even have a pillow, so he had to use a stone, and he shows up there... And he meets Rachel and he committed to serving Laban seven years to pay the dowry price for Rachel's hand in marriage. And you remember Laban uh, deceived him and tricked him so that on his wedding night, instead of it being Rachel, behold, in the morning, it was Leah. And so then he served another seven years to marry Rachel. And then after that, he agreed to work for Laban as a shepherd. Laban said, why should you serve me for free? Just because your family doesn't mean you shouldn't get anything. And so he says, okay, I'll work for you. And they came up with this agreement that Jacob would tend uh, the flocks and, um, and, and, and that he would keep the spotted and the speckled sheep for his compensation. And they uh, agreed to that. But we find out that over the next several years, as the flock starts to, uh, to prosper, the spotted and the, the speckled uh, flocks be to prosper. Laban says, no, 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 I want those to be mine. So he kind of changes the terms um, of agreement to try to come out ahead uh, and to really deny Jacob his wages. But no matter how many times he changes the, the contract, whatever the current price is, those are the ones that tend to, to prosper. See, despite Laban's malicious intent, the Lord was with Jacob and his family and both his children and his herds multiplied greatly. And so Laban's sons are kind of watching all of this and they become jealous and resentful. In fact, they're so jealous they start to make these false accusations against Jacob saying that he's stolen his father's wealth. And in fact, this is that point in the story where Jacob the deceiver has actually become an honest guy. He's not up to trickery. He's not trying to deceive anybody. The Lord is just prospering him. They accuse him of stealing his father's wealth which if you think about it, if they're his sons, they're thinking that wealth will one day become theirs. And they're seeing Jacob prosper and they're going, man, is there going to be anything left for us? And what's more than that, they accuse Jacob of taking 
his father's glory. In fact, the, the Hebrew word for wealth there is this Hebrew word kavod. It's one of those really important words in the Bible. Kavod means glory or weight. You see this word come all throughout the Bible to be a, a key word in the scriptures as we learn about the Lord's glory. And in, and, and in this particular place, they're saying, Jacob has stolen our father's glory. In other words, when Jacob arrived in Padan Haram, Laban was the big man. He was the important guy in the region. He was the big deal. He was important. He was wealthy. But over these 20 years, the tables have turned and Jacob has prospered such that he's now the one seen with status and worth and glory. We find out in the text that Laban has had enough as well. The text reads that uh, Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. And the Hebrew literally reads like this. And Jacob saw Laban's face. And look, it was not disposed towards him as in the past. See, the point here is that Jacob could see Laban's faith and he could tell something has changed. We've all experienced that, right? You see someone's face and their disposition towards you changes. And you just know right away something's shifted. Something has changed. Maybe you were in a conversation and you could just tell, "Uh uh-oh, something has happened because the look on their face has changed. That's what the, the Bible is saying is that as he interacted with Laban, he could tell... Something had changed. Maybe Laban hadn't said it yet, but he could tell things are about to get uh, difficult. You can see it all over someone's face when their disposition towards you changed, uh, changes. And, and Jacob could tell there was a hostility and a suspicion in, in Laban's face. And that's particularly important because in verse 3 we read this. The Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. The Lord comes to Jacob and says, it's time to go back home. It's time to go back to the promised land uh, and I will be with you as you do. The Lord reiterates the promise. You You heard that in the text. He said, I will be with you, which is not the first time Jacob has heard this promise from the Lord. Remember when Jacob first met the Lord at Bethel, we hear this, Genesis 28, 15, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Moses wants us to see something here. God has promised Jacob the gift of his presence. He told Jacob back at Bethel. And now here again he says I am with you. Now that's really important. If we were reading this as as Hebrew readers. We would make that connection between um, uh, the, the change on Laban's face and the Lord saying, I am with you. Because in Hebrew, the word for presence and the word for face is panim. And they mean the same thing. You'll, you'll hear all the time, uh, sometimes it'll be translated face, sometimes it'll be translated presence. But the Hebrew word is the same. And it's talking about presence. In other words, Laban's face, uh, face has grown cold and bitter towards Jacob. But the Lord's face is with and for Jacob. When we think about the Lord's presence, I don't want you to think about kind of like an impersonal force. That's not what's going on. It's personal. And I think that's why the Hebrew uses the word face. So that we don't think about his presence as something distant. It's his personal nearness. It's his face. 
You can be having a conversation with someone and you know that you have their presence when you have what? When you have their face, right? Just because someone's next to you doesn't necessarily mean you have their presence, right? They could be with you, next to you, but they're not paying attention because you don't have their face. Their eyes aren't locked in. But you know when you're having a conversation with someone, when they're locked in, they're dialed into you because their face is not just looking in your general direction, right? They're locked in. You can see their eyes. They're tracking with you. That's why the Hebrew says, when God's presence is with you, have his very face. He's locked in. And so for Jacob, Laban's face has grown cold, but the Lord's face is dialed in. It's like God is saying, Jacob, look at me. I am with you. I am for you. Do you see my face? I'm here. I will keep you wherever you go. So I want you to listen to my words. You can trust me. Now it's time to go home. Later in the book of Exodus, when the people of Israel continue to sin and things look bleak, Moses even prays to the Lord. He says, if your presence will not go with me, that's the Hebrew word panim, face. If your face, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? What's Moses saying? He's saying, if your face doesn't go with us, if your face is not turned towards us, if your presence doesn't go with us, then we're no different from anybody else. It's your presence that makes us your people. Moses is saying, don't turn your face Away from us. Perhaps you remember that famous prayer in the book of Numbers. number 6, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face, his presence to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's what the Lord has promised Jacob here. It's the motivation. It's the reason why Jacob can trust and obey God's word. Despite the difficulties that lie ahead with obeying. And you might be asking, what's so difficult about the decision for Jacob to go home? Well, first, he's going to have to deal with his past. Remember just a few chapters back, all the hurt, all the family dysfunction, all the wounds he's carried. He's left those and hasn't really had to face those these last 20 years. But once he goes home, he's going to be right back there again. How many of you are from different places and going home always means you kind of have to face some of those wounds again. You're driving familiar streets, you see familiar people, and you're reminded again of some of those wounds. That's what Jacob's looking for. That's what Jacob is going to have to deal with when he goes home. Not to mention, he's going to have to face Esau. The last time we saw Esau, he was hurt and wounded because Jacob had stolen his birthright and the blessing. And the only thing the Bible says that gave him happiness and some comfort was plotting Jacob's death. And as a skilled hunter, he's basically an assassin. He's going to have to face all of that. And second, in order to leave Padanaram, he's going to have to get past Laban. See, Laban, as much as his disposition towards him has changed, he doesn't want to let Jacob go. 
He's rather enjoyed deceiving and tricking and manipulating and exploiting him all these years. And he doesn't want to see that opportunity to go. In fact, if you remember from last week, back in chapter 30, Jacob even asks Laban for permission to leave and go home. Once Joseph was born, he was ready to go back to the promised land. And he comes to to Laban and says, I think it's time for me and my family to go back home. And Laban says, no, why don't you keep staying here? So the Lord now commands Jacob to go back to the promised land. And this isn't just a simple, easy yes for him because he knows there's difficulty ahead. It's going to cost Jacob. He's going to have to face his fears. He's going to have to trust the Lord to make good on his promises to protect him and keep him and to preserve him. So we'll see what Jacob does next. Verse 4, Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. So Jacob hears this word from the Lord and he calls together Rachel and Leah. And they have this secret meeting out in the fields. Jacob wants to make sure that neither Laban, his sons, or his hired men can hear their conversation. And in fact, we're told in chapter 30 that they had kept their flocks a three days journey from each other. Think about it. Their flocks had grown so large that it would take three days to go from one flock to the next because they needed that much land and distance so that their flocks could properly graze. And they didn't want them to get intermingled. So instead of going to the common place where their families lived, they, they go have this meeting out in the field, almost a three days journey away. So they're far away from Laban to have this kind of conversation. That's how much they trusted Laban, right? They needed to get that far away to have this kind of conversation. Now Jacob tells Rachel and Leah that something has changed with Laban and and, and their brothers. He can sense that more conflict is coming. He reminds them, if you read verses 8 to 12, of all the ways that Laban has deceived and tricked them over the years. And he reminds them, he says over and over, if it hadn't been for the Lord's presence, if it hadn't been for the Lord's protection, Laban would have gotten the very best of them. And then he tells Rachel and Leah that the Lord has told them it's time to go home. So he's kind of making his case. Listen, it's not safe to stay here anymore. Something is brewing. I can feel it. And what's more than that, the Lord has told us it's time to go. Verse 14, Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then... Whatever God has said to you, do. So they're kind of talking out loud and they basically tell Jacob, yeah, our father is kind of a terrible person. He's been terrible to us all these years. He's sold and devoured our inheritance. Now what do they mean? Well, a few weeks ago when uh, Jacob was marrying Rachel and Leah, we, we find out that he serves them for those 14 years and that was a dowry, right? So it was, it was typical in this day to uh, uh, for the uh, the, the groom-to-be to go to the father of the bride and offer this dowry. 
It was also typical in that day for the father to take that dowry and, and reserve a large portion of it set aside just in case maybe she became a widow or there was poverty or, uh, or, or just in, uh, later in life to give it back to them as an inheritance. And they're looking at Laban and going, yeah, he didn't do any of that. He took that dowry, all of that, the, uh, the, the labor of Jacob and the harvest that would come from that, and he's devoured it. He spent it. He wasn't thinking about us. In fact, the way that he took that money and used it makes us feel like we've been sold into marriage, not given into marriage. They felt like slaves. He's pocketed the fruit of Jacob's 14 years of labor. And so in their eyes, they weren't given in marriage, but they were sold like slaves. Their point is this, Jacob, we have no allegiance anymore to Laban. We should do what God has told us. So think about this. Think about last week, Rachel and Leah. They're having this, this arms race with children. They're at odds with each other. They fought against each other for Jacob's love and affirmation. And yet on this point they can agree it's time to go. That's significant. So the decision is made to leave Padan Aram. Verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to, the, to his father Isaac. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates, and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So they leave. They pack up. They gather the flocks. They gather their things. And they make haste to leave Padan Aran. Now Moses tells us it's sheep shearing season. Which meant it was uh, hard work during the day and partying at night. So they would work hard. They would shear the sheep. And at the end of each day they would have a feast to celebrate the the. you know, the yield, and there would be much merriment and drinking. It was a celebration. And this provided an opportune time for Jacob to hightail it out of the region. They're already three days separated, and now they know that um, the the focus is going to be on the work and partying at hand. In other words, um, Laban and his sons and all of his, uh, his crew would be preoccupied. So it provided a great opportunity for them to get out. We're also told that Rachel stole her father's household gods, which will cause some later issues uh, uh, further on in the story. We're also told that Jacob did not uh, tell Laban that he was leaving. He had learned not to trust Laban. Every time he trusted Laban and said, okay, this is the agreement he had, Laban would always change. He was always um, a, a few steps ahead of Jacob. And so Jacob kind of shrewdly in this moment says, I'm not going to tell him. We're just going to get out of here. He had already tried to get his blessing before. And to be honest, after the way that Laban had treated him these last 20 years, he really didn't owe Laban anything. So at the end of the day, Jacob is learning this lesson to obey God's word no matter the difficulty. Now I want us to take a step back. It can be really tempting when we read the Bible to think that this is a story of like heroes. That all these people are these model people that we're supposed to follow. And if we would just live like them, we would be doing well. 
And that's really not the point of the Bible. The, the Bible is not a story of, of heroes, you know. Uh, it's not a story about good guys versus bad guys. It's really a story about bad guys who need the one good guy, Jesus, okay. Jacob's not a perfect model of faith. He's got this besetting sin of deception that's really left a wake of destruction in his life. He's not a model husband. Last, last week's chapter really showed that. He has a long way to go on his journey of faith. But that doesn't mean that we can't learn some things from uh, uh, these, these, these uh, people of faith in the Bible. We have seen something has changed in Jacob. When he meets God at Bethel, we start to see his faith grow. You might call that his conversion experience. That's when he decides to put his faith and trust in God. We see him in chapter 29 go through this loving discipline as the father uh, teaches him a lesson about the bitterness of deception. Right? He gets a taste of his own medicine. And what I want us to see here is that Jacob, who up until this point has really been self-reliant and kind of living this autonomous life, it gives way to a Godward dependence and an obedience to God's word. See, our sin lies to us. And we often believe those lies that we should be self-reliant and autonomous. So in other words, self-reliance kind of spins this lie. It says, I have everything I need to direct the course of my life. So if I have everything I need, I don't need anybody else. I'm completely self-reliant. The lie of autonomy says, my life belongs to me, and I have the right to do whatever I want. And you can tell how those are a really dangerous combination, right? I have everything I need. I don't need anybody else. And when all is said and done, I have the right to do whatever I want. Self-reliance and autonomy. And this pre-Bethel Jacob, that's the story of his life. All the lies to manipulate Esau... To get the birthright, the deception to get the blessing, all of it is driven by self-reliance and autonomy. But there's a different Jacob post-Bethel. We start to see that this post-Bethel Jacob is starting to see that God has been with him. And he's starting to uh, trust that maybe God is going to keep his word and that maybe he can trust himself to him. You see this in verse 5. We already read it, but I'm going to remind you. Jacob said, I see that your father doesn't regard me with favor as he did before. But what? But the God of my father has been with me. Do you see him starting to see that despite the changing circumstances, here's what I know to be true. God has been with me. Verse 7. Your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times over the last 20 years. But what? But God did not permit him to harm me. See, instead of interpreting his hard circumstances as the Lord's distance or maybe the Lord or maybe him falling out of favor with God. He believes when God has told me, I will be with you. I will be for you. I will protect you. He really believes it. He really believes that God is with him and for him. In fact, it's the difficulty of these circumstances which is training and shaping and forming his heart to believe God's word. We often misinterpret the difficulty of our circumstances or the difficulty of the required obedience as a sign that God isn't with us. Don't we do that? Things are going difficult and our first inclination is God must not be with me. God must have uh, 
lost me somewhere in his earth. He doesn't, he can't see me anymore. His face has turned away from me. Because if his face was with me, if his presence was with me, I wouldn't be going through all these difficult circumstances. Isn't the difficulty of my circumstance proof that God is not for me, that God is not with me, and maybe that God doesn't love me? The reality is God uses difficult circumstances to train and shape our character. It was Thomas Merton who said, souls are like athletes that need opponents worthy of them if they're to be tried and extended and pushed to the full use of their powers. Jacob knows that God is with him despite the difficulty of what lies ahead. And that truth has not only convinced his mind, but it's also transformed his heart. And now do you see it directing his behaviors? He really believes that God is with him and that God is for him. And that's not some theoretical truth. It's changing his very heart and his actions. He's obeying God's word to go back home. Friends, at the end of the day, when we come to God's word, we can either believe the lie of self-reliance and autonomy, or we can believe the truth of God's word. If we believe the lie of self-reliance and autonomy, what we'll do when we come to God's word is we'll reduce the truth and goodness and beauty of God's word and we'll reduce it to the level of mere advice. We'll say, listen, I, I want to go to God's word because I think it might have some, uh, it might be able to weigh into the conversation that I'm having about what I should do or what I shouldn't do. But at the end of the day, I'm autonomous. I can either take God's word and his advice or I can leave it because ultimately um, I, I make all the decisions around here. That's the, that's the way of self-reliance and autonomy. Or you can say, listen, God's word is true, it's good, and it's beautiful, which means it stands in authority over me. I'm not the autonomous one here. God is, and his word is autonomous over me. And so it doesn't matter the difficulty of the required obedience. It doesn't matter the difficulty of my situation or my circumstances because God's word directs me where to go. It's one or the other. There's really not a vast array of different decisions. It's either God's word is autonomous over me or I'm autonomous over God's word. The first lesson we need to learn today is this. We should obey God's word no matter the difficulty. Number two, we should trust God's promises despite the circumstances. Verse 22, when it was told to Laban... On the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. So what we see here is that the plot thickens. Laban finds out Jacob has fled and Laban grabs his sons, his crew, and they go after him. And in these verses and the verses that follow, you start to see military type language. Uh, pursue, follow, overtook. Laban sought after him. With malicious intent. But Laban underestimates Jacob's God because, verse 24 tells us, God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. In other words, Laban is hot. He's pursuing Jacob and God says, Cool it, Laban. I'm going to need you to calm down. You know why? Jacob's my guy. Be careful what you say and do. But inevitably Laban catches up to Jacob and he confronts him. 
Laban says to Jacob, what have you done that you've tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me? Did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs and tambourine and lyre. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. Is it not in my power to do you harm? But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, Be careful not to do, not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my household gods? Let's give it up for Laban. We should give this guy an Oscar, right? He, she's trying to play the part of this loving father and grandfather who has his children and his grandchildren's best interest in mind. He tries to play the victim here, but no, no one should be buying it, right? He's only really upset because he knows his days of exploiting Jacob and his family are over. God has told him to back off, and so really the only offense he can uh, uh, find with, with Jacob here is that someone has stolen his household gods. Jacob answered him, verse 31, and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Now anyone from with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out, what I, uh, uh, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So basically, uh, Jacob tells Laban that, you know, really... The way you've treated me over these last 20 years really left me with no choice but to leave without a goodbye. Because if push came to shove, he feared that Laban, and he, he's probably right on this, would take his, his daughters and his grandchildren back by forth. But Jacob concedes on the matters of the household gods. He says, listen, we're going to leave, but if someone did steal those gods, whoever it is, you can punish them. Jacob claims personal innocence, which he is, because he certainly didn't know that Rachel stole them. But he says, if someone did steal them, you can deal with them. Now it begs the question, why did Rachel steal the household gods? Now you might be going, what are household gods? Well, these are like little figurines. Think like the size of action figures, okay? And you would set up uh, maybe in like the corner of your home, like a, a, a little shrine or a little mini temple to these household gods. They would have been personal to your family. And they were thought to provide prosperity and well-being for your family. Now, perhaps Rachel stole them to get one last jab at her father. Perhaps she had a personal affinity to them. The reality is we don't really know. The Bible doesn't tell us why she stole them. But what we know is that, that Laban searches for them high and low among Jacob's people and among his belongings. And then he comes to Rachel. Verse 34 tells us Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel saddle and sat on them. And Laban had looked all about the tent but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. So it's kind of a comical scene here. Rachel takes the household gods and she sits on them. And then she gives her father a perfect excuse for why she can't get up. She says, listen, the way of women is upon me. And that's enough to freak any guy out, right? We just go, all right, you stay seated. Laban doesn't make her get up and his search comes up empty. There's a little bit of comedic relief in what is kind of a, a rising tension here. And there's also, I think Moses is making a subtle but real jab 
at the stupidity of idolatry. Listen, if you can sit on your God, then they're pretty powerless to do much to help you, right? If these gods had any power whatsoever, wouldn't she bring them out and say, here, look, Laban's here, protect us, deliver us. But we see them, we see her sitting on those gods. In any case, Laban comes up empty and, La- and Jacob has had enough. He tells Laban, these 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I didn't bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or by night. There I was by the heat of the day, consumed by the cold of the night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters, six years for your flocks, and you've changed my wages 10 times. Jacob says, Laban, you want to talk about injustice? You want to talk about offense? I've served you these 20 years, and it's been one thing after another. I tended your flocks, and guess what? They all prospered under your care. I never even took a single ram for a meal. In fact, any time one was lost to a wild animal, I replaced it with one of my own. At cost of myself, I've never stolen from you, not once. I worked diligently, didn't matter the heat, the cold, no matter how tired I was. You tricked me into marrying your other daughter, Leah. You stole an additional seven years of free labor. And when I became your hired hand, you were constantly changing my wages. And all of it, despite all of it, God has been with me. And if it weren't for him, I wouldn't be where I am. And he goes on to say, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction, the labor of my hands, and rebuked you last night. Now if you read to the end of the chapter, and we won't just for the sake of time today, you'll see that Jacob and Laban eventually make a covenant to end end things peacefully. And it's really an agreement to never see each other again. It's this line in the sand moment to say, listen, from this point forward, no one crosses the line. If you cross the line... Then harm could come your way. And they part ways. But here's the second lesson I want us to learn from this section. Jacob has quickly given us this time-lapse video of his last 20 years. He covers 20 years in very short order. And we see that there's one thing, one thing that's kept Jacob grounded the entire time. And it's this. He trusted God's promises despite his circumstances. Not only is he willing to obey, but he's willing to trust God's promises. You remember, God had promised him at Bethel his presence, his provision, and his protection. And Jacob knows that without God's hand in his life, without God being on his side, he would have been consumed by Laban. You know there were times in those 20 years that he would look back at Bethel and said, Really God, you promised to be with me? But it doesn't seem like you're here. You, 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 you promised to provide for me, but it looks like Laban's the one prospering. You promised to protect me, but it looks like I'm getting used, abused, and exploited here. And no one would have faulted Jacob for feeling that way. But despite all of it, he came to believe and trust God and his promises. And isn't that really what faith means? 
Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Jacob's eyes are telling him one thing. I'm alone. God has left me. Laban is getting the best of me. Right? That's what his eyes can see. His experience is telling him those things. And it's a real experience. It's true. He's not living in some fantasy world. Those things are actually happening to him. But his circumstances are clashing against the promises of God. Because those are also true. Those are also real. And Jacob believes the promises of God despite his circumstances. What is he doing? He's interpreting his circumstances in light of God's character and promises instead of interpreting God's promises in light of his circumstances. Do you see the difference between those two things? What he could do is look at his circumstances and saying, my circumstances are telling me that God can't be trusted. He said he'd be with me, that he'd provide for me, that he'd protect me, and look at my circumstances. All of those put God's word into question. But instead he's going, listen, God's word interprets my circumstances. So it must be both true that I'm going through these 20 years of difficulty, but God hasn't left me. You know why? Because he told me he wouldn't. God must be protecting me. Why? Because he told me he would. See, our circumstances are merely that, circumstantial. That's a crucial lesson we've got to get deep down into our souls. Our circumstances do not stand the test of time like God's word. Our circumstances do not indicate nor do they dictate God's character. And Jacob, despite all his flaws, despite all his failures, despite his fumbles, he came to trust that God would make good on his promises. So that begs the question for us, Seven Mile, do you trust God's promises despite your circumstances. Do your circumstances outshadow and overweigh and interpret your circumstances? Or does God's word interpret and shed light on them? Listen to how the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8, 32. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. All. How will he not also with him, with Christ, graciously give us all things? You see what Paul is saying? He's saying, people of faith, don't think for one minute that God is withholding from you. Don't think for one minute that his promises to you will come up short. How can we be sure? Paul says, because he didn't spare his own son. See, God gives us everything in Christ. Everything. And since he's given us everything in Christ, everything he's going to give us is secure in Christ. So you don't have to worry that, your prom that his promises to you will come up short. Because if you're in Christ right now, this is true of you. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 and 4. According to his great mercy... God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Seven mile, your inheritance is imperishable. What does that mean? It cannot 
perish. It's undefiled, which means it will stay pure and protected. It's unfading. It's not going away. It's kept in heaven for you. That means all of God's promises, your incredible inheritance as sons and daughters, is guaranteed by something more trustworthy than the FDIC. You know, we always feel good. We walk into the bank and we go, listen, I know my my little inheritance is okay because I see that FDIC sticker up there. I'm telling you, you've got a better stamp than the FDIC on this one. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So what that means is your past and all of its baggage is forgiven. It's nailed to the cross. Your future is secure. It's undefiled, imperishable, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So your present circumstances, you can trust to him. So let's obey God's word, no matter the difficulty. Let's trust God's promises despite our circumstances. Let's become a people who believe God's word and learn to interpret our circumstances in light of God's character and promises, not the other way around. Let these lessons inform your minds, let them transform your hearts, and let them drive the work of your hands. Let's pray.